This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Oscars are back, baby. Edition. It's Wednesday, March 15th, 2023. On today's show, well, we marched to the Oscars, didn't we, for months, in fact, and we finally got there. Uh, we discuss winners, losers, snubs, surprises, ratings, uh, and as always, the state of the cinematic arts. Uh, and then, relatedly, I, I'd argue relatedly, it's been the golden age of TV for the better part of, I don't know, 20 years since, 25 years almost since Sopranos. Uh, peak TV, it's called, streaming, novel on film, gourmet TV, on and on. Well, it's well, it's over. Welcome to Trough TV. Uh, we discuss uh, a wonderful piece in Slate by Slate's own Sam Adams with Sam. And finally, welcome to Dystopia Part Nth. We discuss bold glamour and super sophisticated beauty filters, uh, destroying the sense of self <laughs> yet further. Uh, joining me today is uh, Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens is uh, the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Good day. Yeah, uh, it is a good day. Um, I'm psyched to talk. All right, well, the Oscars were this past Sunday. Uh, among the many headlines are a bump in the ratings. Uh, we will discuss that. But of course, the big story, I, you, you have to think, is the virtual sweep of everything everywhere all at once. Um, there's so many aspects of this to get to but let's just start with a clip one of the best moments of the night i think most people agree was when kihi kwan won best supporting actor of course he was in the goonies he was in uh, temple of doom i believe the indiana mm -hmm. jones installment um and then disappeared as an actor and some way kept working in hollywood but not really principally as an actor he's a stunt coordinator a stunt for the coordinator most part. Uh, and various other things and here he is he won Best Supporting Actor for his role in Everything Everywhere All at Once. It's a very moving fact uh, and an appropriately moving um, speech went with it. Let's listen. I owe everything to the love of my life. My wife, Echo, who... Who month after month, year after year for 20 years, told me that one day... One day, my time will come. Dreams are something you have to believe in. I almost gave up on mine. To all of you out there, please keep your dreams alive. Oh, do I have to keep my dreams alive, Dana? <laughs> yes, Kihi told you to. Oh, no. 
Oh, that just got me again, even hearing it. I in know. Fact, it, it's funny watching that. That was very early in the ceremony. It was yeah. one of the very first awards. And uh, and I got teary, of course, because watching somebody be that moved, you just almost yeah. sympathetically tear up with them. And I remember thinking, here we go, the first of many times. And that was the only time I cried in the whole ceremony. But it was worth it. <laughs> I totally agree. And he's he was really wonderful in that movie. I didn't know his story when oh, I saw brilliant. it. Oh, no, brilliant. Brilliant. Tremendous. The way he would shift is so funny. His universe shifts in that movie. Brilliant. Well, this is a perfect gateway to, I think, what has to be the initial discussion, which was, you know, every, I don't know how often it is, 5, 10, 20 years. I mean, you know, a movie really dominates the award show. Um, and this year, I think in many unprecedented ways, right? Everything, everywhere, all at once did. Dana, uh, was that a surprise to you? Do you think it was merited? Do you have any sort of strong opinion either way? And it's sort of owning the night. I'm going to be my usual boring nonpartisan Oscar self. Like it's, it was not a huge surprise that it that it won Best Picture. I think it was yeah. the favorite for that, yeah. uh, or that Michelle Yeoh won. I think maybe the the extent of the sweep, like the directing award going to the Daniels yeah. and things like that, was maybe somewhat of a surprise. But I'm not as big into prognostication to tell no. you what the degree of surprise. I can say that I I just in theory don't love it when any movie sweeps too much. I I like the wealth to be shared around because it just makes for a more interesting ceremony, and. While I really enjoyed the experience in the theater of seeing everything everywhere, I mean, I'm I'm not. It wasn't on my ten best list for the year. I think I'm not one of the people who was going around um, really cheerleading for it to do incredibly well in award season. But I'm happy to see it, especially in those those acting categories, do so well. Um, that to me was not the most fun part of the night. I honestly think that. The framing, the the fact that the Oscar ceremony felt like a normal, real ceremony mm. um, with the sort of, you know, people sitting in an amphitheater instead of in a train station right. with cocktail tables in it. I mean, there have just been so many years where, for understandable reasons, Oscar's so white, you know, Me Too, the pandemic, the Oscars has felt so off and mm. so strange that it almost feels like it's, you know, happening in a virtual universe, people zooming in to get their awards or whatever. So there was something... I mean, as retro as it may be, there was something for me kind of grounding about the fact that there was a guy in a tux, you know, not that it has to be a guy, but whatever. There's a host, there's an audience, there is, you know, people going to get their awards in person. It felt a little bit like the movies are back, baby. And I think the viewership kind of reflected that, right? There was a something of a jump in, in viewership numbers this year. Well, Julia, let me just start here. You know, Dana is this towering paragon of Kantian disinterest and so she's not disappointed or moved when something wins or loses. <laughs> no, no, I have no, responses, no, 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 which I'll get to. But it's, it's more that I don't wave pom-poms for a movie at the Oscars. I feel like for a, for a critic, that's almost unseemly. I, I, I really do. I feel like professionally we have to have a little bit of no, remove. You know? uh, absolutely, and I was just being juvenile, but let me continue being juvenile, which is, uh, Julia, you're on the related side of that, not opposite side of that, but you're an editor and and you regard this with a certain professional distance. But was any part of you disappointed or elated or, or not really by what transpired? Yeah, I mean, it really felt like the first quote unquote normal Oscars since the pandemic in that the energy of the room really was about movies. And that felt nice and also boring, but mm-hmm. nice in, in a funny way. And I was sort of interested that the ratings went up. I was surprised that the ratings went up. And I think a fair question is, did the ratings go up because of the absolute shocking debacle of the slap last year and then the total failure of the Academy or any producer to do anything about it? Um, were people tuning in to be like, is something crazy going to happen again? And, you know, when nothing crazy did happen. Are they going to not watch next year? 
I guess we'll see. But I don't know. I think people were kind of, I think it was like a good crop of movies, like a very mm-hmm. varied yeah. crop of movies. Um, one of my favorite moments was Sarah Polly winning for her adapted screenplay for Women Talking, which was a great high point in the in the night for me. Um uh, yeah, I don't know. It just was like a normal Oscar. I just, aren't we disappointed that normalcy is now this standard that gets us to feel some optimism for both the Oscars and the movies? I mean, yippee, it's up 12% from last year. There were 40 million viewers in 2013. There were 30 million in 2019. And right now we're celebrating it being at 18.7. In my lifetime, I mean, it was the 30, you could say it's a 30-year period, whatever it was, but They've gone from utterly central to like the common dream life of the country or whatever you want to say to something of a, a, like a marginalized popular art form or rapidly marginalizing compared to what they were. And the Oscars have gone from juggernaut, like they used to brag every year a billion people are watching, which was a bullshit number and they should have been called on it then. It's nothing like that and never has been. But now they're the little engine that could, the fucking Oscars. Isn't that I, no sense of deflation? I don't know. I mean, but isn't that a, just a huge change in the way we watch TV yeah, as well? I mean, totally. there were four things on TV at the time. So you're going to watch the Oscars because it's that or, you know, a rerun of, of Cheers or something. <laughs> right. And now it was the um, Last of Us finale, right? I mean, they you, you know, HBO dared to like directly counter program the Oscars, which was unthinkable in the past. And then also you can watch the highlights on YouTube the next day. There's no necessary premium or whatever there's no sense of urgency to watching it live all of that i totally get but it's just amazing to me how the standards have really shifted yeah i mean i guess i've 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 got stockholm syndrome or something because i did feel cheered by the viewership numbers going up and by the sense that people seemed excited you know something about everything everywhere is when that is really important is that that movie was both a really popular original movie, right, that brought people into theaters in this post-pandemic era, True. right? And now a movie that is getting all kinds of prizes and, and acclaim. So that could be something good for the movies in and of itself. Although I do fear that we're going to start seeing knockoffs, right? There's going to be sort of like the bad everything everywhere knockoff. I warn you right now, somebody is out there trying to pitch that script. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, Justin Chang, our wonderful critic, wrote a really sensational essay about, you know, kind of wishing all year that he'd loved everything everywhere all at once in the same way that many people did and about what struck him as kind of wanting and conservative in the film. And it's a great, great piece. And it's been fun to see folks engage with it in the last couple of days. Um, But I'd also, you know, I, I feel like it's kind of a victory for the Oscars, I mean, I'm I'm oversimplifying his argument, but which is basically that it's pretty sentimental, feel good family drama underneath all of its hot dog fingers and its freneticness. Um, that it's a pretty conservative and traditional, heartwarming family tale. Um, but you know, the Oscar Best Picture has been a, you know, hasn't always been the highest piece of art, right? It's, it often can have sentimentality or appeal to certain threads of conservatism in Hollywood, but great. Like let the, let the slightly conservative film be, you know, full of amazing acting opportunities for talented artists of color who haven't got, had the careers that they've should have had. And, um, for, you know, kind of up and coming directors in a small studio, like that's just, you know, even if the film is not 
the be all end all or and or not something to unabat unreservedly admire in the way of some potential winners. Um what a great story. Like what a great night. Like just the the narrative of it is is feel good. Uh, Agree. And, I mean, that movie is so good for the movies, you mm-hmm. know, for the future of the movies. And that that makes me feel right. heartened. What did you guys think of Jimmy Kimmel? I thought that, you know, it's kind of handed a tough gig, which is coming in after this really scandalous event. Indications were, at least in the Times piece that I read, that he was encouraged strongly to not talk about it. He addressed it. And I thought it was very funny about it. I mean, it was I, I agree that there's sort of this now that nobody knows what either the Oscars or movies are anymore, there's a reversion to sort of golden era Hollywood elegance and, and Elan or whatever you want to call it. Um, and it, he, I thought he was good for enacting the role of the traditional host of like cheeky, but not, um, not savage at all. Not yeah. savage. Exactly. <laughs> Bob Hope not was Rick- my note on him. Yeah, I wrote Bob exactly. Hope. In my exactly. Notes. And not Ricky Gervais, right? Like he wasn't there to tell Hollywood to its face, you know, what, you know, what it should think of itself. Um, so I thought he was good. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, to me, as I started off saying, the main thing was that there was a unitary host, yeah. you know, which gave it a sense of coherence and strangely made it feel shorter to me. I mean, obviously it's long and it ran long and I sort of didn't care that it was long. It was, like Julia said, sort of boring in a pleasant, familiar way. But I think it makes it feel much longer when you're sort of at sea and different hosts are wandering in in pairs as they have in recent years. So I thought he did a fine job by just sort of being there and keeping it together and, you know, not getting slapped. <laughs> You know, despite my having said that I'm this wondrous nonpartisan Olympian judge of the Oscars, I did have a nemesis, and I almost always have a nemesis. I have it in critics voting, too. Just the movie I'm trying to block from getting any recognition because it makes me angry that it exists. And this year it was definitely The Whale, which Brendan Fraser ended up winning Best Actor for. If it's going to win anything, yes, it should certainly be the award to him because he is – this actually really, really brings me back, and I think I even mentioned this in my review of The Whale on Slate, which if you want to hear my full-out raging pan, you can read that. But it reminds me of Joaquin Phoenix winning for The Joker. You know, it's like, what do you do when an indisputably gifted actor wins for bringing the only spark of, you know, humanity that there is to a, just a movie that is really not just bad, but sort of wrong that it exists, you know, like in the evil category. Mm-hmm. And I think both... Joker and The Whale, especially The Whale, fall into that category for me. And I mean, I won't even get into all the reasons why. Like, we'll shelve for the moment questions about fat phobia and the fat suit and representation, all of that being central to, you know, reasons to despise The Whale. But it is just a bad movie. It is boring. It is bathos filled. Mm. It is just dumb. We didn't talk about it on this show because we kept on putting it off, saying, ah, we don't feel like seeing it this week. And uh, then he sneaks up on us and wins Best Actor for it. It's not that I begrudge him that. And I'm really happy that he has work again. I'm happy he's back in the industry. I think he's wonderful. And I think that things that have happened to him are unconscionable. Um, But it's a bad movie. And I hate to see it get that recognition. And I hope somebody is not out there trying to pitch the whale to (laughs) blow hole forever. I will say... Not to not to stomp on his moment, but his speech mm-hmm. was so bad. Like all the stupid shit. Oh, his metaphors. speech was so embarrassing. Oh God, I no blocked good. it. His speech was so embarrassing. There were there was like a they were on a boat. They were there were anchors. I'm grateful to Darren Aronofsky for throwing me a creative lifeline and hauling me aboard the good ship, the whale. That was written by Samuel D. Hunter, who is our lighthouse. 
We were riffing at it in the room with my friends where we were watching the Oscars, just adding on every possible Ahab, (laughs) Ishmael metaphor we possibly could. Like, yeah, call me Brennan. I mean, you know, it would be so hard to to do one of those speeches and to to nail the kind of um, spontaneity that people want without actually fucking it up through your actual spontaneity. But that one, that one needed a brisk at it. yeah, that felt like a sour note, that that film getting some awards. There was also an interesting tension building through the night when All Quiet on the Western Front won so many technical awards, when it felt like, um, you know, maybe it was going to upset everything everywhere all at once. And then I think the the momentum shifted at the end uh, in, a, in a useful way. Um, and other notable moments for me, one was the upset of Angela Bassett and supporting actress and Jamie Lee Curtis's you know, also a wonderful actress with a long career who deserves recognition. Um, but it, it, the the there was like a real look of heartbreak on Angela Bassett's face when Jamie Lee Curtis's name was announced that um, that really twinged me, you know, and I, I think she was, you know, the, how we feel about people, quote, wanting it. You know, that's the other thing that seems difficult for these actors. Like, you're supposed to want it a lot and take it seriously, but not so much that it's unseemly. Um, And there was just this moment before Bassett reset into applause and whatever else of just like, oh, God, everyone said that was going to be mine. (laughs) That was tough. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think the common wisdom was that the the two Everything Everywhere nominees would split the vote and that Angela Bassett would get it. And especially given, you know, how non-black the slate of acting nominees was. I mean, it was not all white either. There was obviously a lot of, you know, Asian representation going on, including, you know, Michelle Yeoh setting a record. But yeah, it was there were there was almost no one black on the acting slate. And right. so it was sad to see her lose it. She also looked so fantastic. I just have to get in one fashion statement and say I really wanted to come to see hear her speech and see her incredible purple dress on the on the podium. Right. So yeah, that was a bit of a of a letdown for me. Yes. She didn't get it. I will also say that Kate Blanchett's dress was the other best dress that didn't stand up. Um, really, I mean, not surprising. She's always the best, but that was a great dress. But no, the other thing I would posit about this show is that has Lady Gaga proved herself the single best Oscar performer mm. of all time? Like the shtick of that performance of <laughs> rubbing off the face that her bold glamour filter just like <laughs> stripped from her face. And the, you know, kind of MTV unplugged 1998 vibes in the middle of all this glam. And there was also something interesting in the cinematography of the show, like the camera or the direction of it. The cameras were pushing way up. It was way up in Kihi Kwan's face and way up in like the French braid part of Lady Gaga as she was singing. But I thought it really worked. I'm like ready for her to write a song for a movie every year and perform it every year. I mean, like, the randomness was... of that performance choice for that song, right? The the movie about fighter pilots with a, with a big power ballad. <laughs> and she shows up in full glam makeup with this corseted gown and, you know, smoky eyes. <laughs> you have to picture her just running backstage to start scrubbing everything off, to go appear in torn cutoffs, to sing this angsty anthem to the fighter pilots. It's just, I love that she always surprised uh, I was was all in. All right. I just have to quickly say, okay, like all my Kantian disinterest going up in smoke here. I had two rooting interests and I was heartbroken for both of them. The two best things I saw last year by far were all that breathes in my year of dicks. Please seek them out. They both got 
hosed as far as I'm concerned. Robbed. Highway robbed. <laughs> I knew all that Breeze wouldn't win, but I'm happy that it got the recognition uh, yeah, to, to be the nominated. No, the nomination. Same with Marcel the Shell. Zero chance of uh, winning, but maybe a few more people I will know. see it. All right. Well, it was the Oscars. Everyone has an opinion. Shoot us yours and uh, we'll discuss over email. All right, let's move on. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FD Weekend wherever you listen. All right, before we go any further, this is typically in the podcast where we discuss business. Uh, Dana, what do you have? Stephen, we have but one item of business, and that is to tell listeners about our Slate Plus segment today. After the main show, we're going to have a segment about an article in The New Yorker that went a little bit viral last week and certainly caused some lively conversation in our group chat. It's called Agnes Collard's Marriage of the Minds, and it's a sort of profile of the philosopher Agnes Collard, who I think Steve has endorsed on the show before a couple times, some of her, her philosophical writing. She was best known to me for rubbing people the wrong way on Twitter, and we'll talk about that <laughs> in the segment as well. But this piece in The New Yorker is about her uh, unconventional domestic situation, which we will talk about more in our Slate Plus segment, and I think have a very lively argument about, because I think we have a strong disagreement on whether this piece is any good and should have been in The New Yorker in the first place. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can stay tuned for that segment at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. When you sign up for Slate Plus, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus segments like the one I just described, which lots of other Slate shows have as well. And of course, you get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate. You'll also be supporting us, our work, and the journalism of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships matter a lot to keep Slate going. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, let's make a show. All right. Well, the age of peak TV, the halcyon days when streamers could throw money at established creators and talents alike and no idea was too strange to try for a season three is drawing to a close. So writes uh, Sam Adams in Slate. Sam, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. I should say you're a senior editor, editor at the Culture Blog and a very, 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 very close friend of this program. It's always great to have you back on. This is a terrific piece. It's getting picked up a lot. You uh, have a wonderful coinage. As you say, it's becoming clear what's going to replace Peak TV. You have a wonderful description of it, but let's just get to the name, which is so good. Call it Trough TV, when the networks that once aimed for the stars now see how low they can go. Wow, that is... (laughs) I mean, those are fighting words, but I think it's one of those things where as soon as someone comes up with the coinage, everyone sees it's true. We're not, whatever, wherever, whether we're in the trough and who knows how low we can go, we are definitely not in the peak, make the case for our listeners. Well, I mean, this started, um, and I didn't realize that I was thinking about this at the time, but it started, I think, towards the end of last summer when I started having this 
feeling that I couldn't quite recognize because it had been so long since I felt this way, but it was the feeling that there was nothing good on. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I started out watching TV in the age of the you know VCR, and if you missed something the first time you watch it, there was never any chance to see it again. Um, and we've been in this really age of tremendous superfluity, especially since um, almost exactly 10 years ago when House of Cards debuted on Netflix, which really sort of kicked off the original streaming boom. Um, and there's been a lot of volatility in that area recently, especially over the last few years. Every studio decided to launch their own streaming network basically at the same time if they hadn't already. Um, the pandemic kind of juiced the market, and then that audience went away. Um, so there's been a lot of shifting back and forth. Um, and some of the trends that were already starting to um, make themselves felt before that, namely that um, – the streaming boom was kind of consolidating into something more like the movie business where everybody's chasing after the same pieces of highly coveted intellectual property. And they're not kind of trying all this funky, weird stuff just to see what works. Um, and now that the the bottom has started to fall out of the market just a little bit, um, Netflix's stock like had a huge drop last year because they lost not very many, but a few subscribers for the first time. Um, they're really deserting this kind of what to me was a lot of the most interesting um, kind of niche stuff um, in droves. Yeah. Can you just run our listeners through some of the examples of the cancellations or the never showns or the never wases or the, the, the specific things they can no longer see? Right. Well, the specific example that got me thinking about this is this uh, Joss Whedon show called The Nevers, which debuted on HBO a couple of years ago. It was a very big deal when it was announced because like the creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer was making his first new show in over 10 years. Um, there's a whole uh, host of other reasons why that show was kind of in trouble to begin with, namely that he got sort of, you know, he left midway through the season and was probably encouraged to um, because all these reports of, of misconduct were surfacing. But that debuted as this huge big ticket show. Um, they put half a season up, switched showrunners, and then it came back um, in February, and because of all these changes behind the scenes at uh, HBO, namely that it, Warner Brothers, its corporate parent, had a new head, um, the show was taken off HBO and sold off to the, the streaming network called Tubi. Um, so if you wanted to watch the second half of what had been this very big show, you had to like watch this streaming network from 2 to 5 p.m. on a consecutive Tuesday and Wednesday, and like that was it. Um, and this is kind of the worst arrangement since before the dawn of the VCR. Like it's, this is the kind of inconvenience that we aren't supposed to suffer anymore. Um, and I just feel like a lot of things that streaming was supposed to do away with are now coming back. Shows are not only getting canceled, um, apparently, you know, in their prime, even if they have a ton of really rabid fans, but also they're just, some of them are starting to disappear. Um, the Arrested Development revival, which was such a big deal when Netflix um, put it on their service 10 years ago, um, the episodes that were originally pursued Netflix network TV are coming off Netflix and going somewhere else. The two seasons that were made for Netflix are going off Netflix and apparently not going anywhere. Um, they're just kind of gone. Um, HBO among other networks has been removing um, streaming series from the service. And because there's no more physical media there, those are just gone. They've also been canceling shows that they have already renewed. And in some cases produced entire seasons of. Um, so the, Things are just getting kind of nuts, and I just—it's both very new and very familiar. It seems like, in a way, streaming is going back to a lot of the characteristics of the TV industry that we thought we had put behind us. Are we going back though, or are we going forward to something new? 
Like my hope would be that maybe there's a little bit less of everything, but it's unlikely that we're going to go back to pure broadcast, like lowest common denominator has to appeal to everybody in order to get made. Like I do think this last decade has shown such a range of possibility for TV. And I, the notion that companies no longer want to lose a ton of money competing to gain subscribers and are reassessing the subscription business, like it doesn't feel to me like it's necessarily going to erase everything that the business and creators learned about what kinds of shows could be made and find audiences. Am I, am I hopelessly naive? Uh, no, I don't think you are. One of the things I tried to get at in the piece, and this is sort of a little little farther down in it, I do think this is this feels to me like, or looks to me like, a reversion to the mean, but it is not the same mean as it was before. Um, there are some things that, that have changed about the TV business or the streaming content business or whatever we want to call it now for the better, and I don't think they're going back. For example, um, the sort of more niche focus of streaming and also the being more sort of aware of like algorithmic insights, this really direct pipeline to who is watching and what has wiped out some of the old, um, you know, often very, you know, racist and sexist TV business assumptions about like who TV is quote unquote for, who will actually watch, who will watch a show about what people, especially if those people um, don't look or sound like them. Uh, you know, a lot of that is gone now. TV is much more diverse, both in front of the camera and behind it. And that I think is, I mean, that's obviously a good thing. And I don't think that is totally going away. But I, I do think there is a, a kind of consolidation going on in some of the things that the streaming industry, when it was more um, kind of young and volatile, was willing to take a chance on. Um, I think that a lot of those chances are not being taken now. Yeah, that was what I wanted to ask you about, Sam, as much as the business side of, of Trough TV, which I think you described really well as the, the you know, artistic, aesthetic, creative side of, of this moment in TV. And I, th- I thought the most, the worst augury for the future that you wrote about in this in this piece was the fact that AMC, which, as you point out, is the former home of both Mad Men and Breaking Bad, like two mm. of these most acclaimed, innovative shows, are now developing half a dozen spinoffs of The Walking Dead. It just made me feel like, uh-oh, TV is going to become what the movie industry right now is, which is just this desperate mining and remining of the same pieces of intellectual property. Well, but, I mean, it's not like Vince Gilligan can't find a home for his next show. He's just going to do it with Apple, which is has a lot more money than AMC does right now because they don't make their money from streaming subscribers. They make their money from phones so they can still afford it. You know, like that show is going to exist in the world. And, you know, the case of Matthew Weiner's television career is more complicated and involves having spent gajillions of dollars to make a show for, what was it, Amazon? Um, but perhaps we'll hear from him again, too. No, that's that's correct. And I mean, I think it also, I mean, when you're dealing with somebody like, you know, Vince Gilligan or Matthew Weiner, like, they are the IP at this point. So whether Vince Gilligan is doing another, um, you know, Better Call Saul spinoff or, or whatever, or, uh, you know, Matthew Weiner's doing Matter Men, um, I mean, they have enough cachet to get their product made at whoever is, you know, wherever the, the money is flowing at this particular moment. And there are, you know, more spigots than ever before. It's more sort of, you know, where the next, you know, Weiner or Gilligan or the next, you know, show of that nature is, is going to come from. Yeah, that was what I was going to say. I mean, you know, Martin Scorsese can still get, you know, a movie made or exactly because he became the branding device for it. But, you know, th- th- it doesn't renew itself, you know, 
I mean, it has in Hollywood. It's not as though we don't know the name of plenty of directors under the age of 40, but um, not in maybe quite the same way. I mean, one of the things that happened is the term um, peak TV, which we've come to think of as this sort of um, qualitative thing that, you know, TV is better than it ever has been, was originally coined by John Landgraf, who's the head of content at FX, um, just as a, as a purely like quantitative descriptor, just of, you know, there are more TV shows. He was, and his point was, we're going to hit peak TV. We're going to have as many TV mm. shows as we can possibly have. And that took longer than he thought it was. But he's now saying, like, we probably did it last year. Like, there were almost 600 new TV shows uh, on the air, whatever that means now, last year. And we're probably not going to go higher than that. So you can't continue growth in the same way when it's just impossible to have more shows. Yeah. Um, so that you know, some contraction is just inevitable at that point. And that um, changes the logic of what gets greenlit, what gets what you spend your money on, what gets continued across the board. Yeah, you know, Sam, something that occurred to me as you're describing that land, what Landgraf meant by peak TV in the first place is that that is certainly, I think, experientially how it hits me as a viewer, mm-hmm. you know, and, and as a as somebody who is discussing a new TV series every week. And we've talked about this before, you know, as we're picking topics for the show, like, this is just a fire hose. You know, we've talked about so many TV shows that are eh, kind of okay, five episodes in, it kind of takes off, you know, I mean, obviously, also, you know, the quality of any content that we talk about is going to vary. But television in particular, just seems like this place where you could just, I don't know, throw a dart at random and there's an okay TV show to talk about. And so obviously in the minds of consumers as well, that's going to saturate at a certain point. And you just don't want to keep exploring because you've had that experience too many times. Right. I do hope that this contraction in spending, perhaps this is a naive hope, but in some ways Hollywood was making too many things for them to be good. Like on the one hand, it was making so many things that a thousand flowers were blooming and you could get, you know, many, many wonderful quirky shows that if you told somebody in the 1990s they were going to be, you know, made by a major company, you'd be like, what? Where is culture going? Exciting. Um, But also, you know, reporting out here, you hear tales of these companies and streamers that sort of barely have a development process and, you know, like the the machine was sort of going too fast and juddering in crazy ways is another thing I've heard from folks involved in it. So, you know, may, maybe this correction doesn't have to be a total abandonment of televisual excitement. All right. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. We could talk I mean, the good news is, Sam, we're going to talk about this repeatedly. It's just this is an evergreen. Um, so, uh, But for now, we got to wrap it. Your piece is wonderful. It's up on Slate now. It's called Peak TV is Over. Welcome to Trough TV. Uh, thanks a lot for coming back on the show. Thank you. All right. Well, it was bound to happen, right? Beauty filters have been around on social media sites as kind of add-ons to Snapchat and Instagram and on and on and on for a while. But they were certainly moving all along in the direction of super, super sophisticated technology. Um, and basically, the ability to self-deep fake was on its way inevitably. As I understand it, there's been a leap, presumably using AI, cutting-edge AI, though I don't know that anyone quite yet knows how bold glamour uh, a TikTok add-on um, achieves its rather stunning effects. But it's like basically they're taking your 2D face and then cross-referencing it with a massive database of images, then creating a 3D mesh 
<laughs> I mean, I this you know, but it's the point is is that you get a dynamic, real time, moving image of your own, massively filtered and therefore recreated and made. I don't know in into a much more traditionally attractive, glamorous face in real time, Julia. It kind of freaks the f out of me to watch it. <laughs> what about you? So I will cop to being the person who suggested we do this topic because, you know, as as you mentioned, filters have existed for years. There were filters on Snapchat. You could have puppy dog ears. You you know, there people could have flower wreaths. People could dance with Shrek. Like, you know, the notion of having a computer widget that adds something moving and sort of fun or fun-esque to your moving image in some kind of media format is, you know, okay, fine. That's been true for a while. Then there are kind of Photoshop technologies like Facetune that people use sometimes in publishing their own images and selfies on social media, which like kind of are the equivalent of the old Vaseline lens of smoothing out your skin. And anyway, there's all kinds of ways to tinker and tweak your appearance, and we haven't discussed them much because none of us are people who put our faces out there very much in any form, tinkered with or not, uh, in our social presences, if we even have them. But there was like a set of smoke signals coming off of the conversation around bold glamour that really intrigued me. Like people who are very familiar with filters and have been using them a lot for a long time seemed deeply freaked out by this filter and by how realistic it was and how kind of glitchlessly it followed your face around while you made weird expressions. Um, and so I thought it was worth checking it out, especially in, in light of the conversations and reporting that have happened in the last couple of years about the impact of social media and these filters on children. Um, and I was struck by a couple things. One, in my naivety about filters, my reaction to this filter was not whoa, this is so realistic. I could use this in all my Zooms. It was like disgusting. I look like a freak Kardashian. Gross, <laughs> gross, gross. Get this off me. <laughs> like, um, like it did not feel, I mean, I guess if I were the sort of person that was already doing like crazy contours, like if I was already wearing a full face of spackle every day, maybe this would save me the time of doing that, but it was so alien to my actual look that I just kept making. It's like, what happens to a face if you digitally fake a certain culturally accepted type of quote unquote beauty, but then that face makes only repulsed and disgusted expressions. So I have like a lot of screen caps of me being like, oh, like looking like I'm about to puke, but also like I'm a Kardashian. So that was my initial encounter with it. What did you guys make of it? I mean, I feel like I have reporting from the field on this one because a lot of the alarm about this this filter and the potential damage that it could do to, to young girls, um, it, it has to do with, you know, the idea that it would create body dysmorphia because you desire that face so much. And I was delighted to learn after playing with this with my teenage daughter, we just got on her TikTok and, and put the filter on there and both, you know, like you, Julia, made tons of weird faces, sort of trying to shake the filter, seeing from different angles what it did to us. And... I mean, I think I, like you, was vaguely repulsed. My daughter was 
basically bored, and that made me feel good <laughs> about her, her mental health. <laughs> you know, um, she um, she loves glamour and makeup, and I thought that she, at the very least we would sort of have fun with it for 15, 20 minutes. She wanted to maybe pose for three pictures, and then she just, it was just sort of, yeah, it's a filter. It's a beauty filter. I've seen it before, Mom. And I was saying, well, yeah, but isn't this a special one that has all these qualities? I was t- trying to get into the 3D mm. mesh thing that you just described, Steve, like that it follows your face, I think, and tracks it more realistically yeah. than earlier ones. And uh, and she just it was she just sort of shrugged it off. So maybe it is possible that some kids have who have grown up with these filters and followed them right. from Snapchat dog ear days through Facetune days to this more um, sophisticated AI version are just over it. And you know she was saying, yeah, it looks like me with lip filler. Great, exciting. <laughs> you know, right? There is something refreshing about like the younger gener, like, really younger generation's ability to treat what to fuddy-duddies like me seems like a Orwellian dystopia as just simply banal and like old hat and like you know like they don't have such a distinct sense of a public self and like a hoarded private self that shouldn't be made public that the idea that the Chinese are like you know data robbing them blind on TikTok really doesn't seem to bother them. I mean they they're just blase is sometimes just a very very powerful political weapon in some sense like you're just like yeah i don't give a i don't give a shit like i you know and that my kids definitely have moved in that direction when it comes to a lot of social media it it, it's not linear you sort of draw out you know okay we you know you go from myspace friends to facebook instagram blah 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 you know you know the boot on the face of humanity for all of the it's like that's not really the way the line is drawn actually where it ends up going is boredom saturation now it it becomes stale right it's the one thing it can't survive is its novelty effect wears off and the novelty of novelty itself wears off or achieving novelty in that space so it becomes more outre at the same time that it becomes more boring in some sense and the only good index of that is the sensibility of young people because old people were decrying it as orwellian 15 years ago. And um, so, yeah, my kids have the same attitude towards TikTok is like, why would why would you even bother worrying about TikTok? It's this boring thing that we're all the cool kids are evolving beyond it. Well, to clarify, my daughter is on TikTok all right. the time. No, no, no. And- I think she just doesn't do a lot of selfie posting and, you know, beauty filtering and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm. It's like heartening to hear that your children are not ruined. Like, so my daughter is nearing two but acts like she's 10 and like because she's only around 10 year olds and grown-ups and she just mm-hmm. like wants she wants to climb chairs she wants to drink out of a real cup she wants to speak sentences like she's at model un like she's just she's like <laughs> oh. curious she's curious and she's she'll be also ruling like, over us all before she gets to <laughs> yeah, elementary like, I'm, school so i'm like n- I'm not worrying about her self-esteem. I'm like worried we'll all be crushed by her self-esteem on some level. <laughs> she's like amazing. But also I was playing with the filter and she's at the age of being sort of fascinated by phone and what's on the screen. And she wants to come over and poke it. And I had this like feeling of panic as she was coming close to this phone that was reflecting me with this like pout, this this kind of like angry pout um, that the that the stern eyebrows and the plump lips give you. And I I felt like I had a gun. Like I felt I felt like that 
sharp pang of parental danger. Like, oh, I don't want her near this. Like, I don't want mm-hmm. her to see this at all. I don't want her to even know that face. Like, she, is, she I don't think she's ever even seen a face like a Kardashian face. Like, there's no media of that type in our home. But it just felt... I don't know. Like, I don't, how do you, how'd you do it? (laughs) How did your daughter end up okay? (laughs) Like, I just remember, I remember the time in my life when I thought about what I looked like and, and cared and worried. And like, I remember being a teenage girl and staring at the mirror and thinking I was hideous for all of these traits that I now think like, well, those even aren't the ones that are hideous. (laughs) Like, I don't care about the ones, the traits I have that are more towards the hideosity end of the spectrum. But like, to the degree that I was worried about them, I was worried about the wrong ones. Like, you're just, I don't know, it does matter when you're a little girl. What, it just, it's it's so terrifying to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I didn't mean to say by noting that I was surprised by my own daughter's boredom with it, that like, ah, this is fine. I mean, I do find this filter dystopic and worrisome. And I think I would have worried more about it if she were younger and maybe in a period of of vulnerability or low self-esteem. And there are plenty of kids who are experiencing it in that place in their lives and in a complete vacuum maybe of, you know, their parents or anybody else offering input. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if this the, the use of this filter, which apparently went viral on TikTok as soon as it was released, you know, led to some crises and self-esteem among young girls. And it, it's 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 painful to contemplate. So um but I say that also recognizing that I'm a person who doesn't know from TikTok and beauty filters and, you know, face tuning and posting selfies. I know only very glancing contact with that part of, of social media. So I think that I'm basing my lack of panic about it on a single anecdotal case that is not typical. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what perked up everybody's virtual dog ears about this one, too, is that the thing that was invisible to me as a non-experienced filter user of just how much better this filter is than, you know, the other filter I found that made me have freckles and red hair. But it was true when I moved my face, the freckles sort of um, trailed my face's movement like a little visual ghost image kind of. Like I, I could I could sort of start to see how this one was much more accurate and uncanny. It's obviously that people might start to make filters that are much less dramatic than the like bold glamour look that are as glitchless and realistic and maybe they'll propagate off of TikTok and maybe that will be a thing you can do on Zoom or a thing you can do in our increasingly virtual world. Like the question of what's next, I think, is also part of the um, are we at a cosmic tipping point feeling about this kind of goofy TikTok filter that feels similar in some ways to the chat GPT conversation of like, whoa, this is an exciting novelty that also pretends God knows what. (laughs) Like, I think that's that sort of porous border, increasingly porous border between truth and fantasy that feels thrumming with ominous electricity, I think, is part of what makes this filter seem so menacing. Mm. All right. Well, this is definitely one where feedback from listeners would be really interesting. Um, where is this technology going? Is it giving us a sense of dysmorphia? Are the adepts of unreality in Silicon Valley and elsewhere undermining our you know, human essence, or is it just harmless fun? Uh, talk to us. We'd love to hear it. Let's move on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What, uh, what do you got? 
Steve, throwing back to our conversation on the Oscars and my nemesis movie, The Whale, I'm going to endorse a um, a blog post. I guess you would call it a blog post. That feels like an old-fashioned word these days. But yeah, um, a, a post from the writer Lindy West, who is a comedian and writer and longtime fat acceptance movement activist who wrote just the most hilarious, I want to call it a recap. It reminds me of an old Television Without Pity post, if either of you remember that site from the early 2000s, sure. where they would just exhaustively recap a TV show going through every single detail, every prop, every plot point. Uh, this this post does that with The Whale from the point of view of a fat activist watching, you know, Brendan Fraser lumber around in this 300-pound fat suit. It is so funny, savage, mean. I don't even know how to describe it, but it is hilarious and it cannot be equaled. It made me really miss the days when Lindy West used to write regularly for The New York Times. The name of her substack is Butt News, B-U-T-T-N-E-W-S. And uh, and the post on the whale is called, to give you an idea of her scabrous tone, fat suit fart attack, <laughs> the whale. <laughs> the subhead being, I deserve $120,000 for watching this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope people will go down um, down that, that whale spout hole and, and enjoy Lindy West on the whale. Brilliant. Uh, Julia, what do you have? Well, I'm just still coasting off the high of having like an obscenely fun Los Angeles weekend that involved like a perfect salad plucked from the ground and a beautiful misty day and, you know, laser tag in the valley where various celebrities were in tow with their children. Not at my own laser tag event, but... Laser tag in the valley is popping off. Don't let anybody tell you different. Um, but one of the very, very fun things that I did that I would recommend to our listeners is attend the Cartoon Club. There is a monthly cartoon club at the New Beverly Cinema, which is a revival house here in Los Angeles. Um, I think Quentin, Quentin Tarantino saved it a number of years ago. And um, once a month at 10 in the morning, they show um, – you know, a couple hours worth of old animation. Um, so we saw a mix of Warner Brothers and Looney Tunes. We saw old Disney. Um, this was a, a compilation of um, things that had won the Oscar for cartoon, which is, I think, what the award was initially called. Animation historian Jerry Beck was there to talk through some of what we were seeing. We took our sons and one of their best friends and had popcorn and Reese's Pieces and Sour Patch Kids and soda. And there was families and kids and animation nerds and just was like a great crowd of film lovers and really fun to see you know, an old Pink Panther short, um, all of this stuff that I had only experienced as kind of television background noise on whatever, you know, syndicated channel I was watching as a kid as like main attraction, A-R-T art. Um, so anyway, it's a monthly feature. There's plenty of great stuff and great programming at the New Beverly among LA's many great revival houses, but um, bring your kids to Cartoon Club. It was pretty fun. Ah, oh, that's awesome. I follow them on social media just because they have such a pleasing release calendar. And I'm very often jealous of things shown at the New Beverly, which also don't they do a lot of a 35 millimeter projection? I feel like almost everything they show is on film, which in, Excel, in itself is exciting to me. Mm. They definitely do. Yeah. All right. Well, for my endorsement this week, I went down to Miami for the weekend to visit a friend. I've never spent time in Miami. I'm not super psyched to be in the, you know, People's Republic of Ron DeSantis. But Miami is, God, it's really its own thing in a way. And so much of what I'd read about it and heard about it turned out to be true. It's like energy. It's 
I don't know, man. I, I really enjoyed it, and um, but I didn't really know where to go. So I, I texted old friend of the program and, and of me, Jen Ag, and uh, she gave me a raft of amazing recommendations, including lanyap. Isn't that one of your pet words, Julia? Lanyap. Oh, I don't think of myself as a lanyapiard, but <laughs> love a lanyap. Wait, what is a lanyap? A lanyap is like, it's like a baker's dozen, right? It's like you get the extra little gifty from the, you buy a dozen of something and they throw in ah. a lanyap. Is that right? Yeah, it's like a little extra treat. Yeah, a little extra treat. Anyway, um, lanyap is a, it's like a kind of a, basically a semi-self-serve, gigantic outdoor Open air, mostly open air jazz club, though the non open air part of it is really cool. It's like just a really nice piece of Brooklyn DNA introduced into the body of, you know, Miami. And, and it, it, it just incredibly chill, incredibly diverse in age, which when you hit mine is really nice that there's just all kinds of people assembling in this space in a very chill way from, I think, all parts of the city. And it's, it's you know, just young all the way down to six months old and old all the way up to octogenarians and elegant. And um, it just basically an incredibly simple menu of grilled mahi-mahi, grilled salmon, you know, just like three or four things off the grill that you can select. You get it on a paper plate. You can buy a bottle of wine up front or do it by the glass and you just sit and chill for hours. And then at nine o'clock every night, there's live music. It was great. I loved it. I am a huge fan. I hope there are Miami people listening and can second this. And that name, once again, is Lanyap. I'm probably mispronouncing it. L-A-G-N-I-A-P-P-E. Ha! Nice. I can spell it. I may not know what it means, but I can spell it. Uh, and uh, Guys, should we do um, our first post-pandemic live show in Miami? Oh, my God, yes. At the Lanyap. At the Lanyap, yeah. <laughs> it was all a, a sponsored a post ruse. in the end. <laughs> Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana. It's a pleasure. You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Patel. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. For Julia Turner and uh, Dana Stevens and Sam Adams, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.